Well, after I, after I graduated college back in, I'm going to date myself, back in 1999, I got my passport ready. I boarded a plane and I traveled all the way across the globe uh, to the wonderful, wonderful uh, country of New Zealand to travel there for a couple of months. And um, while it was beautiful, this was like pre-Lord of the Rings being released stuff, so nobody really, well, people knew it was beautiful, but it just wasn't all over the movie screen. Uh, it was just covered with beauty, but not all of it was beautiful, and some, some parts were, were dark, and some of, the, some of the moments in my life there were dark too. I remember uh, being struck for several days there with this massive sinus infection and this cold, and I just could not get, I was laid up miserable for about a week and uh, I couldn't get a prescription it was sort of weird their healthcare laws so some of my New Zealand friends over there told me uh, about this over-the-counter remedy that I should I should take it was a cough syrup and um, you know I didn't know a whole lot about it but I will tell you what it's called my friends called uh, introduced me to this stuff called Buckley's has anybody ever had Buckley's okay listen if you ever have a friend that offers you Buckley's, you should seriously think twice about taking it, okay? Because this stuff was awful. Awful. It made me more miserable by simply tasting it. And here's the thing. The Buckley's company knew it. You know how they knew it? I'm not lying. In fact, their slogan is, and I quote verbatim, their slogan, their, their pitch is this, tastes awful and it works. That's on the bottle. Tastes awful and it works. And you know what? Their message was right. It was awful and it did work. Helped me get over the symptoms almost immediately. It was a miracle that something with such an astringent taste could work so incredibly well. Why do I share with you about Buckley's? Because I wonder if you have ever had something in your life come into your life that tasted bitter that tasted awful, that you wanted out of your life, so to speak, but it worked some measure of healing and good for you. I know that I have. I've had those circumstances in my life come and go, things that have been hard and painful, things that I would not have wished, but they came into my life, and good certainly came out of them, though it was not pleasant at the time. They showed me I needed to change, perhaps, or to begin to live in different ways. Not only have you likely known this, not only have I certainly known this, but I want you to know that God's people have known this too. What do I mean? Tonight, as I've said, we come to the end of the book of Judges. And we've said all semester long that it is an incredibly dark book. But tonight, in our closing look, we are at the rock bottom. Things can barely go worse. And as we look tonight at Judges 19, we come to this story, and it is awful. It's horrendous. It's brutal. But if we were to ask, why? Why is this account included in this book? We could say that it's very simple. It's to sober us. It's to wake us up. And you know what? Like God's purposes when His Word go out, they never return void. And so what that means is it works that this text works. What do I mean? It works. Like all of Scripture, it never returns void. And as for judges, we are in the deepest of caves. It is incredibly dark. And I'm hoping for you tonight that you will see the light always shines the brightest in the darkest of circumstances and moments. So even this text tonight is pointing us, believe it or not, even in the midst of all of its darkness, 
is pointing us to the blinding white light of God's amazing and staggering grace for you in Jesus. Namely, God's faithfulness and not His people's sin is the thing that lasts. It's the thing that has the last word. And that's what I want you to walk away with tonight and to see that. So tonight we're going to look at the rock bottom of the cave, the worst story in the book of Judges. And there we're going to find the grandest of jewels of the gospel. So let's consider simply two things tonight. The message in the darkness, and then secondly, the miracle in the darkness. So the message in the darkness, and the miracle in the darkness. So here we go, the message in the darkness. Well, I've said all along that um, this book is very, very uh, dark, and we've seen a downward spike spiral every week going on. We talked about last week, though, we talked about that these last five chapters serve as sort of an appendix with two stories, one from last week, one from this week, all the way up through 21, so 19 through 21. And this story actually happens pretty early in the narrative of the book of Judges, though it's reported to us later on. We learn that for what it's worth from Judges chapter 20 when we learn uh, this was happening in the time of... Um, of Aaron, uh, the priest Aaron, Moses' sorry, Moses's nephew um, um, is, is around the time. And so the point is, is that it's happening very, very early on in the, in the period of the judges. But here's the thing you need to see. Look at how bad things have gotten. You thought the story of Ehud was bad. You thought that Jephthah was bad. You thought that Abimelech or Samson and the narratives there were horrid. Well, let me tell you, things are getting worse. And the writer is saying this, you really haven't seen anything yet. And as the text unfolds, it begins to tell us about a Levite who has a concubine. Who were the Levites? The Levites were the one tribe set apart by God to handle the offerings and sacrifices at the temple. And so it's kind of important that you know that because what you need to think in your mind is basically people like me, pastors. This is a pastor. A Levite is a pastor. A man set aside for religious performances, okay? But secondly, a concubine. What was a concubine? Now, a concubine was not a prostitute, but a concubine was a legally wedded wife, but it was a second-class wife. It was a second-tier wife, okay? And so what you're seeing here is a pastor is knee-deep, neck-deep even, in the practice of polygamy. And we're just getting started. Let's take a look at what else goes on. We're told, too, that she left him. She went to her father's house, and here comes some sarcasm. He must have really cared for her because it only took him four months to go out looking for him, okay? So now you begin to get a sense. Here's, God's, here's, here's, here's the religious leaders not giving a rip about his second wife, okay? Do you see what's going on? It's just going down, down, and down. What happens, right? Well, on the way home, the couple stops in a town in Benjamin called Gebeah in, the, in, in that land there. And they meet an old man who basically says, you do not want to be caught in these streets. So come, crash with me. Grab your stuff and y'all come live with me. And so... Instead of the Benjamites, God people, God's people extending hospitality to this traveler, we're told that a stranger, an unnamed stranger does. Well, the couple goes. And then, y'all, the unthinkable begins to happen. And I just want to say, what I'm about to say next is hard. It's hard for me to say, I wish I didn't have to preach it. it I recoil at it. But I'm going to tell you what the Scriptures say. Worthless fellows, verse 22, compounding on the door. They demand, give us the Levite that we may know him. 
that no there is it, the connotation is sexual intercourse. And so what you have now from God's own people, the Benjamites, a situation where homosexual gang rape is being requested. The old man, showing some character, says, do not do this vile thing. But lest we think he is altogether noble, we're told his next words were, but here are my virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine. Do with them as what seems good to you. Now you need to catch that. You need to catch this doing good in one's own eyes and what's happening here in the text. I just want to ask you, what do you think would have been good in their own eyes? Well, the man inside can stand it no longer, and so the Levite, essentially, the text tells us, seizes his concubine, throws her out the door, closes the door between them. He goes on and gets a night's rest. And then the text tells us that the men outside, that say this in verse 25, that they knew her, and abused her all night long until the morning, and as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And when she returns home, she crashes at the threshold of the house, and there she dies. The next morning, the kind pastor Levite opens the door. No sign of sorrow or shock or concern, and simply says, get up, let's be going. If that sounds harsh, it's because it is. She doesn't respond because she can't. She's dead. He leaves the city with her corpse on the back of his donkey, heads back home, and when he gets home, he grabs a knife. And he then proceeds to dismember this woman into 12 pieces and to send her body into the 12 different tribes of Israel. And the worst of all is that this whole thing is happening not because of some injustice that he is upset about, but because of the sorrowful reality that his property is now dead. That's why he's upset. And with that, y'all, we just hit rock bottom. We just hit rock bottom. The chapter closes. Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it take counsel and speak. And I just want to ask you, is your stomach turning yet? If not, you're not listening. You're not listening. Because Judges 19 is showing us just how dark the misery is. But you need to see that what is so shocking in Judges 19 is not that some pagan nation or people who doesn't know Yahweh is carrying this out. No, this is God's own covenant people, people who knew him, people who had been delivered by him, people who he had given himself for and rescued and delivered. And justice was nowhere to be found. Holiness was gone. A love for God and neighbor are utterly absent. It is moral pandemonium happening. And it's meant to sober us, to wake us up. Why? Because here's why, dear friends. Because sin always, always, always has a blinding aspect to it. We never think things are as bad as they are. Let me say that again. It has a blinding aspect to it. We never ever think that things are as bad as they are. Sin by itself is self-deceiving. Its number one symptom is denial. And here it is. And what that means is you know you have it if you, don't say, if you say you don't. That's the way you know it's deep in your bones. That's the telltale symptom of it. 
In her recent memoir, Lit, Mary Carr, the author, wrestles, wrestles with recognizing that she is an alcoholic. In a low moment in her marriage, she attends an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And after hearing a few stories about alcoholics, she stands up and declares, I doubt I am an alcoholic since I never drink in the morning and nothing particularly bad has ever happened to me. Not bankruptcy, not a car wreck, not even the standard mugging. So she goes home and then the next morning, however, she finds herself finishing a tumbler, a tumbler of whiskey left over from the night before. And she begins to finally see. As she feels the drink burn down her throat, she catches herself in her first lie. She feels a crack in her self-deception. That's key, y'all. This momentary recognition of her own self-deceit led her mind to proclaim this. I have a disease whose defining symptom is believing that you don't have a disease. My head thinks it can kill me and go on living without me. Y'all, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that this text is meant to shock us. It's meant to sober us and to show us not only what is happening in the land of Israel to God's own people at this time, but it's meant to press in on our own hearts and to act as a mirror and expose our own hearts to the ways that we live too. Surely you're not someone who has chopped up somebody and sent them out to the 50 states of the United States, though you may have. And if you have, I want you to see in this text later on that there is real grace for you. But I do want you to understand that this is meant to shock us and to wake us up a little bit because the story is unbelievably hard and it's meant to show us something. And here's the crucial question. What is it that this horrible story is asking us to see about ourselves? In other words, what is the thing that we don't see, but that we need to see, that we must see? And that's where it comes in chapter 21, verse 25. I meant to read this. I didn't, so I'm going to read it now. If you have your Bible, turn it there. It's the very last verse of the entire book. Here it is. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what this is telling us is that the real problem with the men of Gebeah, the concubine, the Levite, and everyone else in Judges, and you and me, is that everybody wanted to do what everybody wanted to do. They wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. The reality of being a law unto oneself was the underlying issue that permeates the entire book, that permeates the entire witness of the Scriptures, and what runs right down into your heart and into my heart too. Said otherwise, they didn't want to live under God's good and wise rule. And they all, like me, therefore, had authority issues. They didn't want anybody telling them how they ought to live. They gave God the middle finger and said, nice knowing you, we'll do it our way, a la Frank Sinatra. This is what leads pastor theologian Ralph Davis to write this. The problem is not sins, but sin, and he defines it. That declaration of independence, whether stated viciously or politely, which says, yes, I do want to be like God, calling my own shots. And what you see is that this is underneath every sin that you and I commit. You're always sinning twice when you sin. First, for wanting to live your own way. And secondly, 
when you actually do it. <laughs> Y'all, were a mess. I'm a mess. I'm an absolute mess in the way the Bible just shows us what is really, really true about our own hearts. Why do we see this? I know that this is a longer first point. I know that, and it's going to go, uh, we're going to go rather quickly here to the end um, in the second point. But here's the thing you need to know. First of all, why do we do this? It's part of our nature. You know what frogs do? They jump. You know what birds do? They fly. You know what human beings have done ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3? They've been saying, I'll do it my own way, thanks. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live. And that's not just to fellow man. That's to God Himself. We look at God. We extend the middle finger of kindness and say, I'll do it my own way. That's deep in our bones. It's in our nature. Secondly, Beyond this, freedom and choice are in the air that we breathe. We see this everywhere in our culture because it's everywhere in our hearts. Think about this. Y'all know Elsa, right? Anna and Elsa? Okay. If you have five-year-olds, you know Anna and Elsa. I can tell you that. I might have seen the movie a couple of times, a couple of ten times. Um, There's a pastor, Rankin Wilborn. He writes in his book, Union with Christ, he notes about Elsa. Y'all know the story, right? She's got these hands that shoot out ice and she isolates herself and that sort of thing. This is what's so amazing makes this observation, ready? She is singing about her choice, there's the autonomy piece, to exercise her power to be free, right? You know the song, right? I'm free. And you know what she's actually doing in that very moment? She is locking herself into an ice castle of her own making. Go back and watch the movie. It's crazy. I can't wait to be free. It's very symbolic. It always comes at a cost, though, doesn't it? Elsa made her own ice castle prison. The great poet W.H. Auden once wrote this, and this is again from Rankin. He wrote this, Each in the cell of himself is almost convinced of his freedom. That's beautiful. I know that. What about you? Do you know the enslavement of your own autonomy? Do you know what it's like to do life right in your own eyes? Make no mistake about it. When I want to do what I want to do, I become less, not more, myself. And sin, if I may personify it, doesn't want you to know or see that. Please don't take the Buckleys it urges. Life is good as you know it. But I hope you've seen over and over again throughout this book of Judges what we've been building to each week, that to do what is right in our own eyes never brings freedom. It doesn't. It only brings more enslavement. That to do what is right in our own eyes never liberates us. It only brings more misery. Y'all, the application is so, so simple tonight. Have you been sobered to see the dark spots in your own heart? I'm not trying to guilt you, y'all. I'm right there with you, okay? I'm saying it for me too, but I'm just wanting to ask you, are you willing to say that this sort of stuff exists in our heart? Or do you find yourself minimizing? Yeah, it's not that big of a deal. Or comparing, yeah, sure, I've got some of this in my life, but I'm not as bad as him or her. Or is there flat-out denial? No, I'm basically fine. I would suggest you're not listening to Judges 19 if that's the case. It is saying that all of us, even God's own people, have a desire in us to do what we want to do, to chart my own path. Here's here's how it sounds today. You've got to be true to yourself. You hear that? That's right in your own eyes. That's what that is. 
And it's crushing you. And it's crushing me. You're not free when you're living your own self. Woody Allen once said this, the heart wants what the heart wants, right? And that's sort of the mantra of the college era. Let me tell you this. What happens when the heart wants the wrong thing? What happens when the heart wants the stuff that's killing you? Then what? Then you begin to taste the enslavement and the ruin and the misery that is autonomy, that is doing right in your own eyes. That's the message, y'all. That's the message that Judges 19 is trying to get across. It's trying to wake us up and to sober us. Some of you are dealing with this in really, really profound ways, and there is good news for you tonight, and let me see, that we're going to see, but let me be clear. If you cannot be honest about the depths of your very own rebellion and turning from God, God's grace will be meaningless to you. It will be meaningless to you. Could it be that one of the reasons that you are struggling to taste and to see and to experience the sweetness of God's grace is because you won't get honest about how bad things really are in your own heart and life. That is the message of the darkness. And if you're in the dark, there's no light around, how in the world are you going to be able to see again? Here's how. You need rescue from the outside. You need light to come in from the outside, which is what we see in our second point, the miracle in the darkness. The miracle in the darkness. I mentioned this earlier uh, in our uh, series, and I need to mention it again, the difference between prescriptive and descriptive text. Prescriptive and descriptive text. This text is not a prescriptive text. When we read it, we don't read of something like we do of one of Paul's letters telling us, go and do likewise. Okay, That's not what this is telling us. It's a descriptive text. It is reporting about what has happened without any sort of comment, as it were, as how we ought to live in light of it. That comes from broader issues, broader contextual issues that we may need to make sense of, and we're going to do so tonight. I want you to know, though, that if we zoom out a little bit, we begin to see it. You saw it there in verse 30. We consider this and we speak. Did you catch it there in verse 1930? Consider it. Think about it. Take counsel. Mull it over in your mind. And then speak and talk about it. And y'all, here's what we have to see. We have to remember not to lose sight of the book as the whole. Remember what this, where the story falls. Where the story of the book of Judges falls. Remember, God had delivered His people out of Egypt. They had spent 400 years there. And He did not forget them. He made promises that He would redeem them and that He would rescue them. He would deliver them to Himself. And in fact, He did in that great moment called the Exodus and the, and the Passover and the Exodus. And then they wandered for 40 years as they were about to go into the promised land, this land of blessing that God had set aside for His people. And they finally take that land. They finally go in. But what do they do? That's right where the book of Judges starts. They fail to dispossess it. They fail to wipe out the paganites the pagan peoples and their gods, and it kills them for a series of about 400 years in the book of Judges. And so you keep reading this over and over again, right? What happens? They take these practices from the surrounding nations into their life, and it gets them in trouble over and over again. They end up turning time and again into their own misery. They keep saying to God, will you come and deliver us? They cry out for God, the one they've scorned to rescue them. Think about that. Think about that. They have said, essentially, blank you, God. And then when they've tasted their own misery, they're saying, will you please come save us? And what does God do time and time again if you've been with us in Judges? 
Does he turn his back and say, you made this mess, you fix it. You made your bed, lie in it. Is that what God does? No, what does he do? Over and over again, he flies to their rescue. Their ruin, their misery is the thing that moves him into action because he's a compassionate God. I spoke with one student who will remain a name because I did not ask for his permission to say this. He said, man, if, if I were God, I'd have been done with me. That's the proper way of reading Judges. That's what you'd expect. But this is a God that's unexpected. And so what happens, right? You get to the end of the book and you read this and you go, what is going on? And the book literally ends by telling us this, that there was no king in Israel. And it is connected to the idea of doing what is right in your own eyes. I want to come back and look at that in just a moment. But I think this is very, very important. Y'all, the real miracle in the darkness is that God doesn't give up on His people. He doesn't quit. And what that means is, is that when your life begins to look like the people in Judges, it means that this promise is as sure as the seat that you're standing in. And that if you are in relationship with God, He does not ever give up on you. That I don't care what your story is. I don't care how bad you think things are. That's part of the message of the book. If God puts up with the crap like these sorts of people, I'm telling you, would you dare to believe that He would do the same for you? If He's rescued you at your worst, what makes you think He's ever going to abandon you? Are you going to surprise Him? Oh, I had no idea that He was like that. I'm second-guessing my thoughts here on this now. Absolutely not. That's not the way that God works. So here's the deal. In your failures, He's there. In the midst of your sin, whatever it is, some of y'all are carrying shame. Boatloads of shame, as the Avid brothers would say. Boatloads of it. And you're wondering if God could ever forgive you. And I want to tell you, the book of Judges tells us over and over again that He does. Some of you are going through some incredible suffering right now. And it's easy to think that God has abandoned you. But the book of Judges reminds us that He's right there with you. And He's caring for you because He loves you. Others of us are wrestling with the silence of God. Where is He? But y'all, God never abandons His people. So how do we know that God will and do do this? Well, even here, in the darkest of minds, there are gems. And that takes us to verses 19.1 and 21.25. And did you notice what it says? There is no king in Israel. And 21.25 mentions it like this. There was no king in Israel when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Why? Why are these connected? Why? Why is there's no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes connected? Because here's why. Because Judges is telling us that Israel needed a king who would come and finally make things right. That would finally come with a good rule. A rule that would cause people to flourish and to live, capital L. To come and to thrive. That's what Judges is telling us. That we need a king who will finally come and make things right. And the book literally ends with leaving us hanging. It's like a cliffhanger. You read it. Ready? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And here's what I want you to see. If you turn the pages in your Bible, we come to a brand new book called Ruth. If you're holding a Hebrew Bible, you go straight into the book of 1 Samuel. Both make the same point. I'm doing it because this is an English Bible. Ruth, y'all, if you know the story of Ruth, is a story that happens in the time of the judges. 
That's what happens in the book of, and it says it in the first verse, in the days when the judges ruled. There it is, Judges Ruth 1.1. Ruth was a Moabite. She loses her husband to death. She travels back with her mother-in-law, back to Israel, to live and to work, where eventually she falls in love, and she meets a man named Boaz. They marry, and they have a child, a son. And his name, strangest of all, is Obed. And Obed would one day grow up, and he too, as you might imagine, would have a son. And his name was Jesse. And who, as you might guess, would grow up? He would have several sons, the youngest of whom would be a poet and a shepherd. Oh, and one day, the son named David would become a king. And not just any king. You see, many, many generations later, long after David died, There would be a son of David, and he too would be a king, except he would be the king of kings. And he would come from Jesse, but his name would be Jesus. And and in his hands, and in his hands, as the great writer J.R.R. Tolkien once alluded, he writes this. Oh! Bummer. Oh, well. I'll read it to you. I've got it here. It's right here. It says this. But the moment's lost. Here we go. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. Jesus is the one who would come for his people. He is the one who would die for us, that our hearts might be set free from ourselves. You see, he was the one in his final hours that did not pray, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. But instead, do you remember what he said? Lord, not what I want, but you want. And in so doing, that got him his death. And it was his death that brought us life. And instead, now he rules and reigns us. He subdues us, not with power and force, but with love but with kindness. In the ways that He loves us, it sets our hearts free. That's why we sang the song. When it reads this, it says that His commandments, His commandments, they become their happy choice. That to follow underneath His rule is now a delight because of our good King who brings out flourishing, who brings about our good, who brings about our thriving. That's the promise that a good King brings. There's healing in His hands. He subdues our stubborn hearts. And y'all, that's where the book of Judges ends. It leaves us pointing to our great King Jesus who would come. It's been a real privilege to walk with you through this book. Thank you for coming this semester. Thank you for listening. Thank you for learning. And I hope you're left with this very one thing. that The book of Judges is all about the failure of God's people but it's also about God's grace and His faithfulness that goes deeper than the people's failures. And that same grace is for you. I want you to see it. I want you to take it. I want you to believe it. I want you to live. It's on offer tonight. Let's pray.